This is Inside the Writer's Head with Emma Carlson Byrne, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2018 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here now is Emma Carlson Byrne. Hello all, I'm Emma Carlson Byrne, this year's public library writer-in-residence and host of Inside the Writer's Head. My guest this month is award-winning author Brandon Marie Miller. Brandon writes books on U.S. history for young people. Her subjects have included women of colonial America, women of the American frontier, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, and General Robert E. Lee, just to name a few. Brandon's books have been honored by the International Reading Association, the National Council for Social Studies, the Society for School Librarians International, Voices of Youth Advocates, Bank Street College, and the Junior Library Guild. I've been lucky enough to know Brandon for over 10 years, and she is just what anyone would want in a writing friend. She's smart and kind, tactful, and direct. Brandon, welcome. I'm so glad you could come to talk today. Thank you, Emma. That was very nice of you to say all of that. (laughs) And it is all true. So tell us a little bit about how you got into writing historical nonfiction for kids. You have a degree in history. Did you set out to be a writer? And what led you to this point? Um, I did not set out to be a writer, but having a degree in history, what are you going to do with it? So when I was a young mother with two little girls. That sounds familiar. Yeah. (laughs) um, A new children's history magazine had just started called Cobblestone. And I saw something about it in a magazine, and they said to query them with ideas. And I didn't even know what a query letter was at that time. But I sent for their writer's guidelines. And, and would I, this have been by mail that you sent for the writer's guidelines? Oh, yes. It was all by, by snail mail. And I, I wrote a, a query letter for one of their topics and sent it in. And they gave me a go-ahead, and I found myself writing my very first article I got paid $80 for it. Wow, big, big money. It was. What I, was the topic? It was on, uh, it was called Dress for the Occasion, and it was about what kind of clothes cowboys wore. Oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds like the kind of article I would love to both write Late, and read. Later, I wrote a book with the same title that uh, was on the history of American fashion. But I got that $80, and I bought myself a desk lamp, which I still use today. Oh, that's a great, <laughs> it's great that you had something definitive. That you bought with your very first writing check. Well, I never knew if there'd be another one, so I thought I'm going to get myself something that I could keep and use. So, Did you continue writing for Cobblestone after that, or did you move on to books? I kept writing for Cobblestone for quite a few years, maybe writing a couple articles a year. I wasn't doing a lot. And then one of the editors at Cobblestone sent my name to a book publisher. The book publisher was starting a new series called People's History. And I contacted that editor, and she said, well, what would you like to write about? And she gave me a few ideas, and I said, well, I'd like to write about women of the Old West. So um, I wrote my very first book proposal and um, sent that in, and I got my first book contract off of that. And I've been writing books ever since. 
I remember that you have told me and our various writing groups that we have been in a lot of memories of uh, typing at a kitchen table with uh, little children either in between your knees or swarming around your feet and papers all over the place. Yes. You tell us a little bit about how it was in those early days when you were a working writer and a mom of young kids. Well, I was I was typing. I I graduated to an electric typewriter, which was was very was very nice. <laughs> And um, I actually was able to use little sheets of whiteout that you could hold up and strike. The keys would strike it instead of painting the whiteout on. It's like um, obsolete. Compl- yes. This is like you're talking about, you know, how you set <laughs> type by hand or something like that. And, um, you know, I tried to work at night when my, when my husband was home or if I worked during the day. A lot of times I had a little person like between my legs reaching up to the desk. <laughs> trying to type at the same time I was and it just it's just frustrating because you want to ro- work on your book or your article and and um you know the little people are are always there so um I think that's one of the reasons I wasn't doing much in those in those days yes. and even as my kids were older I always learned to never have a book due in the summer Definitely. Because, I have learned that the hard way myself. Uh, because it's like you're just driving them hither and yon and, and you're never home at your desk. So, um, yes, I, I learned that the hard way when I missed a deadline by quite a bit. And I could tell the editor wasn't really thrilled with me, but, you know, what could I do? Um, but I always try to have them do now earlier in the year or later in the year. That's very wise. So, Brandon... Mm-hmm. Nonfiction writing, and really all writing, but because you are a nonfiction writer, we're going to stick with that for right now, is utterly entwined, inexplicably, not inexplicably, but utterly and in every way entwined with solid research. And I know that just saying the word research makes everybody want to fall asleep, but the truth is that research is actually my favorite part of writing personally, um, by far. When you were talking about your uh, article about what cowboys actually wore, I was like itching <laughs> to like, look up the sources and like find out like what were chaps really for? Like what was the purpose of the shape? You know? <laughs> That's because you and I are huge nerds. Um, but talk to us about the research that you do when you prep for books. I know from talking to you that you do a lot of really interesting primary source research. Um, talk to us about the funner aspects of the research you do, how you keep the research from overwhelming your life and your project, how you keep control of it, how you access your sources, and there's a lot of questions about research. Tell us something about the challenges of research, knowing that you're writing material for a young audience. All right, you're going to have to hit me with those again as we go <laughs> along, I think. Those were a lot of questions at once. You can do it. Um, research is the basis of everything when you write nonfiction, because if you don't know anything, you can't write anything. So it really pays to take your time with research. Um, I always start generally. I start with what are considered the best secondary sources, the most current books. And for those of us who might not be totally familiar with the terms, just review for us what a secondary source is. Well, a secondary source would be a book that maybe uses primary sources, but it's written by somebody else. And I usually try to stick with college professors, people who are really in the know about the subject. Um, I start with that to give myself a good grounding in the person's life if I'm writing a biography. 
um, or to find the information of the times, the context, because when you write for kids, you have to give them that context of what was happening in the greater world um, because they, they don't have that on their own. So um, I start with secondary sources, and then I just steal as many books as I can from their bibliographies and their source notes because I find books and articles that I probably wouldn't find on my own. And here's this whole list of books just on my topic, ready for me to, to look at. So I try to go from general history, general information, and I start working my way down to more primary sources, which would be reading letters and newspapers and journals and advertisements, listening to music, anything that's actually created in the period that I'm writing about. And would you, um, would you, how, what form are your, the letters, let's say, for instance, in? Would you be looking at these letters that are reproduced in a book or a bound form, mm -hmm. or are you going to the archives and uh, looking at the actual papers? I have not gone to the archives and looked at the actual papers. Um, I don't have the time or make enough money to do that often. Join the club. Um, but so many wonderful sources now are online. And a lot of papers of famous people in particular are compiled in books. And, you know, sometimes it's taken 30 years for editors to compile these letters, say, of George Washington. There's volumes and volumes. But there's so much that's online now that it, it makes research so much easier than when I started. Um, the book I've just finished on Robert E. Lee, um, there's actually a Lee family digital archives that oh, wow. is um, that you can look at all of these letters from all different sources right. in one place, which was just fabulous to read Right. Not only important official letters during the Civil War, but to read the family letters from all the family members. So, um, and in the past, those letters probably would have been scattered between various or small private libraries, exactly. uh, maintained by like you know the Lee Foundation or the mm -hmm. at the family home, and you would have to travel there and mm -hmm. access the actual papers and uh, take notes right then and there. Right, that's ex exactly right. Um, so it really is great to be researching today versus even 20 years ago. Even 10 years ago, really. That's true. So, so much more comes online all the time. Right. And you can actually take virtual tours of places and um, you can check out museums. You can, you know, I, I always like to travel if I can to actually see places in person um, for women of, the, of um, colonial America I've been to Boston, I went to Virginia, and you just see a lot of the sites. Um, for Robert E. Lee, I, I went to a lot of the places important in Lee's life. Um, but to sit down and be able to read the letters and things in my own home is, is makes it so much easier to do. Well, and for us as working writers, we have deadlines, and we need to get the material out. It's right. much more efficient. It, exactly. You know, I don't have, I can't take a year sabbatical and go and sit and go through all the letters. So I have to trust that other people have done that for me. <laughs> um, but it's so important to read the primary sources because you pick up little bits of information that you don't always find. And every writer finds different details important. So just because a particular letter has been used in many books, 
you may find something else that you think is interesting, and that's what you're going to quote from. Um, and tell us something that you have found. What's one particular detail that stands out to you that you found in that way by looking through a letter oh, or newspaper that you were like, I have got to include th- this tidbit there, in the book? There are so many. Um, just to, to name a few, um, I found a quote in a old ma- uh, an old newspaper about um, spinsters in the 1700s and they called them maggoty peevish they just had this whole list of words about they were women that that came into the world to take up space and not do things for others and charming it it was terrible and i I, as soon as i read it i'm like that's going in the book definitely because i I was never going to come up with maggoty or peevish to describe a a spinster so um and in women of the frontier i read a journal of a woman amelia stewart knight and she's talking about as they're getting, they've crossed the plains and they're getting into the mountains and their oxen are starting to die. And I hadn't read that in another book. And she's talking about how they have to unyoke these oxen who have just collapsed, fallen down dead and drive their wagon around, you know, with the remaining oxen and how she's crying for these animals that have brought them you know all the way and and have died now and I thought that must have been terrifying because you're literally out there and it's like your car's breaking down and there's nothing you can do about it and people were you know just dumping along the side of the road things you know precious heirlooms they brought from home and furniture and doing everything they could to make the wagons um, lighter for these these oxen to pull and it was just such a wonderful detail that she writes, you know, to shame on the man who has, you know, who doesn't feel anything at this moment. And I wow. thought, that's a woman's perspective, and it's different. Definitely. And um, with Robert E. Lee, one of the things I found interesting was um, the first year of the war, right as the Civil War is starting. And all of this chaos is going on, and the nation is falling apart. And he writes to his wife that he's forgotten to, to cut the, the hooks and eyes out of his old uniform that held his, the epaulets in place. And he's forgotten the, the, the parts that held his neck collar in place. And would she cut those out and send those to him in Richmond? And I'm thinking, with everything going on, right. he deals with it by focusing on this right. totally unnecessary <laughs> detail Haven't we all done that, Yes, because it's easier to focus on that. And the interesting thing was, you're talking about his old U.S. Army uniform that he had proudly worn for 35 years, and he's now just handed off to um, the enslaved workers at Arlington that they could wear it at his at his home. Wow! But he wanted to get those. But he wanted those hooks hooks and and eyes eyes. first. So. You know, that ended up in the book, and I'm like, I don't know if anyone else would have put this in, but it just struck me, this was his mindset at that moment. Right. So you never know what you're going to find. Just interesting things that cast a new light. So it's important to take your time with that research. Absolutely. Every author will have a different different take. So, you know, when you write for kids, um, Brandon, you know, a lot, I don't need to tell you that a lot of parts of history are bloody, ugly... Um, uh, grotesque, 
How do you um, balance that? I mean, you write about wars, you write about enslavement, you write about um, the not very pretty parts of our history. So, Mm -hmm. you know, how when you do your research and when you're putting together a manuscript in its early stages, how are you deciding how to balance the material and knowing that um, kids are going to be reading this? Well, if it's things like the history of medicine or the history of fashion or things like that, the kids love the gross details. Love it. Um, you know, even if you're talking about war and how a soldier's life was, they they love all that stuff. When you're starting to talk about things like um, how women were treated or Native Americans or, or slavery, um, it's a lot harder because you have to tell the truth. So much of our history is sanitized and how it's it's presented. And... I write mostly for middle grade and young adult audiences, so I don't feel I need to really shy away from things. Um, And in the case of just writing the Lee book, he's such a controversial figure right now with Confederate monuments and Confederate flags and everything. Yes, that was very timely. And um, there's so many myths about Lee, and, you know, I read all these you know, you, you go into these chat rooms or you read comments, and people just keep perpetuating these myths that Lee did not own slaves, that he hated slavery, um, you know, that he freed slaves. And I just knew the easiest thing was going to be to just quote Lee himself throughout his life. What did he have to say about slavery? And let readers just make up their own minds by seeing what he actually said and how it changed during the course of his life. And um, I think you just have to give the facts. You don't have to sensationalize anything. But, um, you know, the facts speak pretty much for themselves. And I hope that people will, you know, kids and adults who read the Lee book will will come away with some new understanding of Robert E. Lee and the world he lived in. Absolutely. So, um, Brandon, let's switch gears slightly. Um And let's talk a little bit about both the business of writing and your daily life as a writer. Uh, This is a podcast primarily for serious, aspiring writers. Mm -hmm. So let us in a little bit on your life. What's your writing schedule like? How do you keep yourself on track? And um, tell us a little bit about your writing space, where you work, and how you break up your writing days. Oh, okay. Well, I just finished cleaning up my writing space after the last um, Congratulations. Revision, <laughs> revision with <laughs> Lee going over the, uh, the copy editor's notes. And um, I have a room, and it has a lot of bookcases in it, and a desk, and tables. Facing the window? Oh, yes. Facing a window. I, I always ha- face a window. I have to be able to look out the window and stare at, stare at the treetops and the sky. Um when I'm working on a project, it gets pretty messy. Things just get kind of stacked on tables and on the floor, and um, it's not the best circumstances, but it's usually how Clearly things work out. Clearly it works for you. But, um, yeah, and um, my schedule, I don't really have a schedule. I mean, when deadlines are looming, it's you're really working on it just all the time. Are you working I mean, like eight hours a day? Are you working five hours a day? I'm probably working on it eight hours a day That's until a I, I can't look at the screen anymore. Um, 
and your head just gets fuzzy after a while. It's um, it's it's not the best situation. But I try to break it up by, um, not just writing, but going back over things that I maybe had written the day before, or you're turning, you're returning to your sources. You're maybe doing some more reading, or you're planning what you're going to write in the next section. I always break it down into. Um, almost scenes like you would in a novel. So um, maybe I'm only concentrating on something that happens two or three or four pages at a time. That makes it much easier. I only have to be in that that mindset. Um, since I'm writing nonfiction and I'm writing biography mostly, I try to use a lot of quotes, right. which can help because you know that you're writing like up to a quote or you know what that quote's going to say and you're just trying to give the context and explain um, the situation that's going on. You're also pulling information out of letters so that you can give details about what someone's day was like. If they've commented on the weather or they've commented on something, you could include that in your description. Um, so I, I'm trying to bring different things in so that the day is my day is broken up a little bit. Yes. Um, when I'm doing revisions, which is is my favorite part after research, um, I I revise daily a little bit on the computer. But when I'm going to do my big revisions, I print it out and I have to sit down with uh, with a pencil and an eraser, and I have to have that connection between my mind and my hand and my eyes and I have to just be thinking about it and scribbling all over my pages um, so revision is a whole different thing from the writing researching is very time-consuming because you're not really sitting at the computer so much you're reading a lot of books or if you're on the computer you're looking for articles and and different things that you can download and, or print off you're taking notes um, if you're lucky you get to travel and do research when you're traveling um, taking notes buying books just trying to soak in the atmosphere of what you're seeing so there is a lot of difference in in what you're doing. You're either planning, you're researching, you're writing, you're revising. So I can't really say one day is necessarily just like the other. Um, the only thing that's the same is that you're always so happy when that first, you feel that it's ready to go to the editor, that you've completed something you could send in. Definitely. And then you wait for the editorial notes to come back. I always pretend that they're never going to come. Whenever I turn in a manuscript, I just sort of pretend in my mind that it's going off to uh, to layout and it's yeah. going to be published then and that, yeah. that's the end of it and there's never going to be any revisions coming. Of course, they do come, but then I have a couple of weeks of sort of delusion, you know, where I just pretend that it's gone. Yes. That's it. The, um, yeah. <laughs> sometimes you don't have a lot of, of revisions to do with the editor. And sometimes That's a delight when that the, happens. the editor, you know, like hates the whole second half of your book and you've got to totally rewrite it. Yeah, in, there's the dread word rewrite. Yeah. So you have to totally rewrite it in like six weeks around Christmas. So Exactly. It's always six weeks around Christmas, it isn't it? Always it always is. Yeah. yeah it's, it's always true. around the holidays. Or it's right before you're leaving. I like open the email. I think I'm leaving for vacation in a week and I cross my <laughs> fingers and I'm like, oh God, the deadline is the day before I leave. Or it's right in the middle of the vacation. Yes, and and after you get that revision sent in to the editor, then it's like you have downtime, and then you'll have days where you get like tw 20 frantic emails, you know, questioning 
you know, about different things and you're frantically trying to look stuff up and where did I find that source, that's another tip. If you're writing nonfiction, please carefully keep track of your sources. Absolutely. Because you're going to have to have source notes. Um, even now with middle grade yeah. uh, nonfiction, you have to have source notes listed in the book. And I can't tell you how many times I've had a page number and no book to go with it, oh. or I've had a book and no page number. Right. And it's just because you're writing and... I literally cannot yeah. find where I got that quote. Apparently I got it from somewhere and God knows where I got it. Apparently from nowhere because I cannot find the book. It's it's the article. just the worst feeling. And um, th- when I'm writing, I usually, after a quote, I just do a quick little citation. I'll just Me say too. the author and the page number. Me but too. sometimes when you're right, really in the midst of the writing and it's going well, you forget to put one of those things in. And, right. and then you're like, oh. You learn yes. the hard way. You I've been a lot more careful way. after a couple of really naughty manuscripts with a lot of stuff I couldn't. I was not being as careful as I oh, could. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Brandon, tell us a little bit about being edited and working with editors from a writer's perspective. We've talked to both writers and editors on this podcast. And um, we want to hear what you think about your relationship with your editor, your main editor, if you have mm-hmm. one, or I have many. Some people just have one or two. And um, what the editing process is like for you. And also tell us a little bit personally about how you handle editorial criticism, which is probably <laughs> the hardest part for any writer. Um, well, I've worked with, with quite a few different editors. And um, some are very hands-off. They just have a few questions here and there, and others are much more involved. Um, the editor I'm working with on the Lee book is, she's a fabulous editor. I mean, her books win all kinds of awards, and for that reason, I was both terrified to work with her and anxious to work with her. Um, I felt... After so many books, I really needed someone to maybe push me to that next level. And um, I don't know what the outcome is going to be in terms of how the book will be received. But she has certainly pushed me. Um, the, and in what ways was she sort of, the, do you feel like the, she was encouraging you? Or the first half you? of the Lee book was fine. <clears throat> and the second half of the book was very rushed. And you asked about editorial notes. Um Sometimes with editorial notes, I'm like, what? What are they talking about? They're never fun to read. This is just fine the way it is. And, you know, um, and other times you can see what they mean and you're like, oh, my gosh, why didn't I think of that? Or why did I, you know, why did I not do that? Um, Or I thought of doing that and I didn't and I clearly should have. Yes. Um, The Lee book, she just, she kept saying things like, I don't get who Lee is. Who is this man? What is he thinking? What is he feeling? I need more context of the world he lives in. Wow. And she was right about all of it. But as I read those notes, chapter after chapter after oh, chapter of those feeling. notes, I mean, my my morale just oh, plummeted. Oh. And I thought, uh, you know, I, I let her down. I let myself down. Yep. It was, you know, it was Think not. Maybe I should leave this job. It was just, it was not a good experience. And. I was able, though, to do it by breaking it down into the tiniest little bits and going back to my research and researching some more 
and you know luckily she you know she was like this is a stellar revision when I sent it in good Um, I had to ask for more time which I hate to do and in the middle of it I gave um, a presentation at a young authors program and I was talking to sixth graders in one group and seventh and eighth graders and high school kids and I thought you know what authors usually come in and they talk about life is wonderful and this is what I do and who those people are but they're delusional yes and you know it's it's all wonderful and I thought I'm going to tell them the truth about what this was right like writing this book on Robert E. Lee so I went through the whole process I didn't hold anything back and at one point I just made a list a powerpoint slide of the editor's comments. Oh, but they loved that. They were well, probably freaking we out. We went around the room and I had them do a dramatic reading <laughs> of the editor's comments. This is like group therapy. Yes. And um, I said, now if it's in all caps, I want <laughs> you read a really emote. You they know? were probably eating this up. And so we went around the room and the kids were reading them and pretty soon they're all laughing and I'm like oh shaking my, my fist and marching around and and the kids loved it. I'm not because surprised. I'm sure they think that every book just pops out. Right. Perfectly Or they think done. that you're perfect when you're yes. an adult. By the time you're an adult, exactly. it's time for perfection. And, and they get edited themselves all the time. They get edited themselves. And I'm like, this is what it's really like to write a book. Yes. This is what an editor, she right. has to pull it out of you sometimes. And, you know, so I'm I'm very grateful to the editor with this book. No matter, you know, what happens, it's... It's going to be. It's a great one of book. my favorite books now that I've written, even though the process was yeah. one of the worst. Yeah. So, um, what were we talking about? What was the we were question? talking exactly about exactly about what you are talking about about editing? And okay. you know, I'm just thinking, Brandon, back to my own very favorite book I've ever written, and it was certainly it was the one um, in which the editor pushed me so hard. It f- took forever to come up with the concept for the book. I cried several mm. times. And then I did so many revisions to that book. I could not believe how hard she was pushing yeah. me. And it turned out to be a great book. It was my favorite one when it was done. And I really give her full credit yeah. for not letting me off the hook at all. That That's really wonderful. And I think it's like the teachers in school who expected the most from you. They're the teachers you remember and are most grateful to. You know, Absolutely. Because we, we all need those people along the way. And um, yeah, Going through the editorial process is not always fun, but it really is necessary. And um, I think, you know, for people that are self-publishing, they need to find that person that could really help them edit their book because definitely you, you've got to have it. You can't just do it by yourself. No, you cannot do it alone. Mm-hmm. So, Brandon, we're coming to the end of our talk, but tell us a little bit about what you have in mind for yourself um, long-term writing-wise. Do you have any goals that might surprise us? Oh, well, first I just want to survive Lee and have that come out. You're almost there. I'm almost there. Um, next, I've written a, a picture book, which is totally different and out of my element that um, I have an agent, and I think she's going to be sending that out this fall. Fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about it? It is about an African-American family who um, is our homesteading on the Nebraska Plains in the 1870s. Because I had all this, these great details from writing my Women of the West books. That's another good thing. If you do research, you've got research to use on multiple projects, not just the one that you did the research for. Um, 
and I also have a young adult historical novel that I've written that I need to revise. Um, my agent actually read it last summer and gave me some um, ideas for revision, and I haven't had a chance to get back to it because of working on the Lee book. So I'm looking forward to to getting back into that and writing some fiction. and It'll be really interesting to see what happens with those books. Yes, it will be. Nothing may happen with them, but it, it's just, a you know, you always want to stretch yourself and try something different. And, and so we'll see what happens. Well, that sounds great, Brandon. And I'm so glad that we could talk today. Me too. Thanks for coming in. Oh, you're quite welcome. For the Cincinnati Public Library, I'm writer-in-residence Emma Carlson-Byrne. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. You can meet Emma at various events throughout the year or at open office hours on the third Saturday of every month from 10 a.m. until noon at the Coryville Branch Library. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writerinresidence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes and leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you for listening.